Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon from Oak Hill Church in Humboldt, Iowa. We pray that it helps you to know Christ, grow in Christ, and sow Christ wherever you are. For more information about who we are and what we're doing, go to oakhillhumboldt.org. We're here for good. We're here for good. That's our vision that God has given us during this season. He has planted us here in this community uh, for such a time as this. Uh, Galatians 6.10 says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And so we get to join God this spring in blessing our neighbors, the nations, and even the next generation. That's the path we'll take as we, as we march through this series together, pun, pun intended. Some of you guys are just waking up, so I'm trying to help you there. Uh, we'll also culminate this series in our Commitment Sunday on March 28th. And so be in prayer about how God may lead you and your family uh, to give cheerfully toward this vision of here for good. Well, today we're going to focus on our neighbors. We're here for the good of our neighbor. So who is our neighbor? It's anyone and everyone whom God has put in your path who needs the love of Jesus. Let me say that again. Your neighbor is anyone and everyone whom God has put in your path who needs the love of Jesus. And so if you've got a Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Colossians. Uh, Colossians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, the words will be up there on the screen and back of me. I want to read just a few verses here. And as we move into this, you're going to see Paul's heart for our neighbors. Let me read verses 2 to 6 of chapter 4. This is the word of God. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So here Paul shows us how we can bless our neighbors to bring the gospel to those outside our Christian community. But what I want to do is I want to back up in the book of Colossians to show you the progression of Paul's thought here as it relates to bringing good news to our neighbors. So the easiest way I know how to do that is by drawing pictures for you this morning, all right? I'm going to draw some pictures for you this morning. I'm going to give you permission uh, to doodle along with me. And so up on the screen, uh, hopefully we can get that working. Yes, all right, I am there, but it's not quite there yet. All right, so kids, you can participate with me in this. In Colossians chapter 3, uh, we see how Paul begins by telling us that we have a new identity. And so, start with this over here. Hopefully, you can see that. Is that showing up? Yeah, there it is. All right. We've been given a new identity in Jesus. And this new identity means that we are no longer the ones who are calling the shots in our lives. Remember from last week, Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
he, he carries that same theme into the book of Colossians as he talks about our life being hidden with Christ in God. If you want to follow along in chapter 3 with me, you've got your Bible, you can do that. Uh, he, he talks about how our life is now hidden with Christ in God, that we have this new identity, that we put on this new self that's being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. And so when we think about being a blessing to our neighbors, it begins by reminding ourselves we've been given a new identity. It's no longer I who lives, it's Christ who now lives in me. Some of us, we struggle to be uh, vocal about our faith in Jesus or even live out our faith in Jesus because we're so inward. You know, we're, we're dealing with a lot of shame and guilt in our story, and we've just got to be reminded that Christ now lives in us. God looks upon us with eyes of love and gentleness. He, he loves you and he's living in you and he wants you to be a blessing to others. Now, the progression of Paul in chapter three is he moves from, let me first of all just put this up here so you can remember. This is our identity. Can't read that too well, but it's, at least it's uh, humble wildcat colors, right? That's what I was going for. All right, so that's our new identity. And he moves from that into talking about how we've been placed into a new family, all right, which is called the church. We have a new family. And so this is good news for us because we're not living lives as lone rangers trying to do the best we can on our own, but God has put us in the local church. He has brought us into this new body, this new family, and we're to live out our identity in Christ in the context of this family. And so the, the encouragement to you about this is this, you don't have to have all the gifts. You, you are wired uniquely by God, gifted by God. And in this whole work of sharing the gospel and, and uh, this work of evangelism, it takes all of us with who we are. Some of us are going to be prayers, even more so than others. Some of us are going to be encouragers. Some of us have the gift of hospitality. Some of us are servants. And some of us really are more vocal with the gospel. And some of us are cheerful givers. And all of that is significant in this work of evangelism. As we're going to see, we're all called to give an answer for the reason, for the hope that lies within us, but we do it together. And so our identity, and we move into our family. Paul then moves from that to show us how this works itself out into our real lives. And so he has three uh, spheres of influence. And it begins with our home life. Our home life. In Colossians 3, he talks about our marriages and our parenting. It's just a good reminder for us that if our Christianity doesn't work at home, it doesn't really work at all, right? If we're expecting to kind of bring this gospel to others and yet we're not living it out in the context of our own home, if we're not talking about Jesus with our own family members, why would we want to talk about Jesus with those who are our neighbors and those who are on the outside? And so it begins at home. We're to take our new identity and, and move out as a family into our very home life, from there, he talks about our workplace. And I realize we all have different jobs here. And I'm going to try to make a desk. And that's a, that's a computer screen is what that is. All right. 
and that's a little, little desk there. Okay, you can, you can see it, right? Kind of. Um, this represents not only our, our work, but also school. You know, for those of you who are, are students out there, um, we are to carry out who we are in Christ, the person that we are in Christ, and to be a blessing in our workplace, to be a blessing in our school systems, all right? And then from there, he moves from home to work, and finally, he talks about the community or our neighbors. And so this becomes kind of the uh, progression for the Apostle Paul. And you can notice I can't do two things at once. <laughs> Most of us men have, have a struggle doing that, right? But here we see the progression of Paul. He wants you to, to make this, this big uh, realization in your mind that you've got to be who you are wherever you are. That's really what this is getting at. Who you are in Jesus is to move out into your home life, your work life, and your neighborhood, in your community. It ought to make a difference, right, in the way that you live, in the way that you speak, in the way that you act. It all comes back to, though, who you are in Jesus. So this is the progression. This gets us kind of set up to where we're going. Just want to do one more thing, though, to show you here. And that is this. A lot of us view evangelism this way, all right? And it's going to take some time to kind of break this from us. We think, this is the church, by the way, we think evangelism or sharing the gospel is basically getting people here. And there's nothing wrong with that in the sense of inviting people to be part of the, the services and what we're doing at Oak Hill. And yet, you know that the church is not a place, right? It's not a program. It's a people. And so the better picture that we ought to have in our minds is that of a group of people uh, together who are in fellowship with one another, right? Who are all together Oh, wow, that's a bad little person there. All right? But instead of the church being a building, it's a group of people who are moving outward, you see? The church is to be moving outward into the world. And so we, we gather then for the purpose of scattering out in the world with our new identity in Jesus. And so that's, that's the picture that I want in your minds as you think about these verses that we're going to now uh, study together through. That the church is not a building. We're a people. We're unified in Jesus. We take our new identity out into this world. Now, no more doodling. All right, let's, let's get to uh, Colossians 4. So here's how I want to set this up. Knowing this progression, Paul is speaking into a culture much like ours that's growing increasingly hostile to the gospel. You've noticed um, over the years, uh, we are now trying to minister to a very resistant culture. Um, no longer is the case that, that people even have a worldview that includes Jesus in it, right? And so we're, we're starting from square one. We're speaking into a resistant culture. And Paul here is writing from prison. He knew that the gospel the gospel and preaching the gospel would be met with resistance. And yet, the hopeful thing is this. If Paul is giving instructions to young Christians here at this church at Colossae, he's speaking with a lot of confidence. That He's like, guys, we can do this together. In the context of this hostile, resistant culture, we have Christ living within us. Let's be on mission together. 
And so he basically gives us three ways we can do that. So the question becomes, how will then we reach our neighbors? How can we move into this community with the love of Christ? And there's three things. Number one, we pray with urgency. We pray with urgency. Secondly, we walk with intentionality. We walk with intentionality. And thirdly, we speak graciously. We speak graciously. So let's go through those one at a time. First, we pray with urgency. We pray with urgency. Look at verse two again with me. Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So he begins with this urgency for us to pray. And oftentimes we just neglect to even think about prayer when it comes to being witnesses for Christ. We're to pray with urgency. One of the reasons why we don't pray with urgency is we have a view of prayer that sees prayer kind of as God as our divine butler who's there to give us good things, to to bring us happiness, to bring us comfort. So we're calling out to God when we need stuff, right? It's this this personal laundry list of things that we want. I want to be careful with that because God is our heavenly father. He does give us good gifts. We can approach him like little children, whatever is on our heart, whatever is on our mind, we can come to him as needy children. And yet, so often is the case, when we seek to pray, it's mainly about us in our comfort. I think of James chapter 4, verse 2 and 3, where James writes, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. So so firstly, we sometimes just uh, don't receive in prayer because we don't even ask. We just go throughout the day kind of doing our own thing, living on our own uh, wisdom based upon our own, um, you know, strengths and abilities, and we just don't ask. We don't believe that prayer really matters. And then secondly, we ask, but we're asking wrongly with wrong motives, Get a window into your prayer life, and a lot of times prayer is a means to our own ends, right? It reveals our idols. Like, what is it that I really want? And I'm I'm praying these things because what I really want is more comfort for me. Prayer becomes kind of a approaching God like a vending machine. Just give me what I want fast right now. And it just hijacks prayer from God's purposes, his bigger purposes, his purposes to, to, to reach this world for Jesus. And so John Piper helps us here. We sang today, O church, arise and put on this armor. We're in a battle. We're in a war. And he reminds us this quote here where he says, until you know that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. Prayer is for the, comp- the accomplishment of a wartime mission. The larger quote, I'm going to read that as well. It says that prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It's not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. And so we've got to remember that life is war, that you and I, we're in war together. We're in a battle together. And that unites us in the mission that God has given us 
that we're together in this. There's a spiritual battle going on all around us, raging all around us, and we've got to pray with, with urgency. You see the church praying in the book of Acts over and over and over again together. And I was reminded that Paul here is in prison, and you may remember when Peter was in prison. And what were the people doing on his behalf? In Acts chapter 12, verse 5, it says, so Peter was kept in prison. By the way, he was more than likely going to be beheaded the next day. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So here Peter was in prison as a spokesman for the gospel, as one of the leaders of of this new movement of Christians, and the church is having this prayer meeting. It's carrying on throughout the entire night, and you may remember the story. Peter, in the middle of the night, there's an angel that comes and breaks his bonds, and the door is flung open, and he's freed from prison. He goes to the place where they're all gathered to pray. He's knocking at the door. The servant girl comes to the door, sees that it's Peter, forgets to open the door. Peter's outside thinking, I was just released from prison, and now I'm just twiddling my thumbs out here. What are you doing? But back there, they were praying. And she says, hey, it's Peter. And they're saying, no, no, no that's got to be an angel. There's no way. Well, finally, Peter comes in through the door, and they're amazed. They had been praying persistently, as it says here, steadfastly in prayer. God responds to the prayers of his people. Sometimes we forget that. God actually responds to little old me, right? And my prayers, the God of the universe is responding to our prayers. So we pray with urgency and persistence. We pray as if life is war. In verse 3, Paul goes on to say, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So notice the irony here. I'm sure Paul knew the story of, of Peter being released from prison, and yet here's Paul, and what is he praying for and wanting prayer for? Not for his release necessarily, but for the door of the gospel to swing open to people's hearts, a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. I'm in prison here, and I want people to know Jesus. That's his greatest desire. And so you see that prayer here is the key to unlock the door of the word and the mysteries of Christ. It's the catalyst. It's the walkie-talkie. It's, it's the doorway for us to advance the gospel together. Let me say this. I need your prayers. We as your pastors, we need your prayers. What's going on here is it, it kind of seems like these uh, apostles and disciples are on the front lines of the battle, and they're preaching the gospel, and they're sharing the gospel, and they're saying, pray for us. We're on the front lines of battle. We need reinforcements. We need your prayers in order for this gospel door to be opened and people's hearts to receive Christ. It can't happen by mere man speaking. It's got to be by the Spirit of God moving right? And so we pray. We pray urgently that God would do that, not just here, but throughout our community. We're joining him in what he's doing. That's why it says pray, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. We're expecting God to answer these prayers, and then we give thanks to God because he receives all the glory. And so we pray. 
We pray. We pray to break the bonds of resistance in our community. We pray that this gospel door would be swung open wide for Christ to save more in our midst. So Paul says, pray with urgency. Secondly, he says, walk with intentionality. Walk with intentionality. Verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. So he moves from praying to, to walking, and this verb walk means this daily, ordinary life that we live as Christians. It's not as if we turn on and turn off our witness. We are always witnesses walking through life in the home, at work, at school, in our neighborhood, at the grocery store, Casey's, wherever we are, we are always carrying with us Christ inside us. And so we're to walk in wisdom, in wisdom. I thought of Psalm 90 verse 12. I think it kind of brings together these thoughts where the psalmist writes in Psalm 90, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. One of the ways that we walk in wisdom is to know that our days are short. We're aware of the preciousness of time. For Paul, he says, make the best of, of the opportunities that God gives you. Making the best use of the time literally is redeem the time by the opportunity in front of you. Seize the opportunities. Don't, don't disengage when you're out there in the community and with your neighbors. No, in, engage in those moments with them. Make the best use of the time. Seek their good. Be eager to engage them. We're to live wisely. We're to live redemptively. How can we do that together as a church family? Well, for honest, many of us, uh, we kind of um, shrink back in fear when it comes to sharing with others who are outside of our friend group, so to speak or we respond in kind of anger toward the culture around us, fear or anger, and God has called us to move towards these folks in love and grace. I think of uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, when he was in Athens in Greece, and I got the opportunity a few years back um, to go to Greece. Um, my parents in their church, they were going to see the missionary journeys of Paul, and we we're able to go to this uh, amazing city of Greece, or amazing city of Athens, Greece. And here where I'm at right here is the, uh, the place where Paul stood as he was walking around this city of idolatry. And I was, I was a tourist, you know, in this moment. I was looking around all of the, the wonderful, amazing, like, sculptures and all of the history behind this and all of the, the Greek gods that they, they worshipped and all these amazing buildings. But, but Paul, as he was in the city in Acts chapter 17, he wasn't coming as a tourist. In fact, his heart broke as he saw the idolatry of the city. He was aware of the, the false gods they were worshiping, and his heart just broke inside as he walked around and saw it all. In Acts chapter 17, we see these words recorded. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So notice Paul, when he 
sees the idolatry of the city, his spirit is provoked, his heart breaks inside of him, but that doesn't lead him to go inward, and it doesn't lead him to respond in outrage and anger. It leads him to go and reason with those in the synagogue and go to the marketplace where people are gathering throughout the day. And he's speaking with them, he's talking with them, he's rubbing shoulders with them, he's striking up conversations with them. Paul was engaging secular Greek culture. He was a student of the culture. We see later on, he stands up about where I was standing right there. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. I want you to see that Paul's heart here, as he sees all the idols around him, is not to judge them or condemn them. So often we as Christians are just right along with the chorus of outrage in our culture. We spend so much of our time like on Facebook and social media and talking with each other about all the stuff that's going on in our culture. That's not what Paul did. He was trying to make bridges into the culture. He loved the people who were, who were lost. His heart broke for them. In fact, we, we see here in this, in this text, he's actually complimenting him. I perceive that in every way you are very religious. You and I have some things in common here. You're a worshiper and so am I. He passes along and sees this object of worship. It says, to the unknown God. He doesn't say, pfft unknown God, to go along with all those other gods, right? No, he says, hey, what? therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Do you see how he was a, a bridge builder? He didn't create more barriers to the gospel. He wanted to take people where they were and say, hey, but by the grace of God, I'm no different than you, so I want to find ways that I can, I can make bridges into your life. He entered into their brokenness with empathy and love. So, so we are, we're called to walk in wisdom like Paul did toward outsiders, making the best use of our time. We're to be bridge builders. People need Jesus now more than ever in this community. A while back, we kind of drew this big uh, circle. Uh, we call it the 15-mile vision. And you can see there, uh, some of these numbers may need to be updated, but I think in general, we can say that this is true. 16 towns around our 15-mile radius represent 13,000 people. So many of them, approximately 75%, are not connected to a church family. Can you imagine that? 10,000 people are not connected to a church family. People need Jesus in our community now more than ever. We think of what's happened through this pandemic. We think of what's happened in our culture today. People are searching. They need hope. They're, They're dealing with a lot of questions. We're called to walk in wisdom toward those who are on the outside looking in. So Paul says, pray urgently, walk with intentionality, and then thirdly, speak graciously. Speak graciously. Verse 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Can you say that about your life? about your speech, is it always gracious? (laughs) That's a challenge, isn't it, right? Do you speak with grace, especially to those who may be um, 
struggling and sin and all kinds of issues in their family? Is there a gracious tone to your speech? Is it seasoned with salt? Reminds me of Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 13, where he writes, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? He's speaking to his disciples here, and he's, he's saying, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. This is you, plural. This is not you, singular. You together are the salt of the earth. You're to bring your saltiness into these places as a preserving effect. Your very presence makes a difference. A, a little salt can go a long way. You know, salt has an effect because it's distinctively different, right, than the object it's on. We ought to live distinctively different lives. Our speech ought to be distinctively different. It ought to be full of grace. Salt also makes a difference because it's in close proximity to that which it's giving its flavor, right? Which means we've got to rub shoulders with those who are not here yet. We've got to be engaged in their lives. Light can't make a difference unless it's in the darkness, right? So to be a faithful presence in your sphere of influence. I think about being distinctively different in the world. The world needs to see us as Christians who are not grumpy but gracious. We're not arguing with each other, but we're, we're asking good questions with each other. We're not combative, we're kind. We're not complaining, we're engaging the culture. Such a challenge for me personally to live this way, to speak this way. But Paul says, when we speak with words of grace, when we're salty in our speech, people are going to notice there's something different about us. Isn't that what he says here at the end? So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. They're going to be asking you questions. It's similar to 1 Peter 3.15, where Peter writes this. He says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. I love here, because last week, you know, we talked about Peter and Paul who had this confrontation, and yet here they are in agreement about this one. And it shows us that even though we may disagree on things, we move together in the gospel. We've got a big mission. We've got to link arms together in this vision. And Peter's basically writing the same thing. Hey, people are going to ask you, if you're living a life worth questioning, if there's hope within you, they're going to wonder why and ask you about it. And you do it. You answer with gentleness and respect. You answer with grace, seasoned with salt. So when you walk wisely and redemptively and speak graciously, people will inevitably ask you questions. And how will you respond? How will you respond? Why are you such a happy person all the time. Why do you care for me in that way? Why are you um, someone who seems to be praying about so much? Why, are you, why do you even go to church at Oak Hill? What, what is it about you, you know, your family? It just seems like you guys are kind of strange, but a good strange, like a good weird. You know, what do you, what do you say? How do you respond in those moments? I love this quote by uh, Jeff Vanderstelt. He says, live in such a way that it would demand a Jesus explanation. Love that. Live in such a way that it demands a Jesus explanation. Like there's, there's nothing in me that can conjure that up. That's from Jesus living in me. 
right? The only way I can sacrificially love you that way is because Christ has first loved me. It demands a Jesus explanation. Are we living that way? Are we living that way? Where people are asking us about our hope. And so Paul, he says, how are you going to make a difference in this resistant culture? How are you going to make a difference? How are you going to reach your neighbors? Three things, pray with urgency, walk with intentionality, and speak graciously. And now I want to give you just some specific questions you want to ask yourself. I want to ask myself to make steps of application today. Because it's, it's, it's all in good for us to see this and to know that we're on mission, we're here for good, but it's another story for us to actually live this out. So mentally jot this down or actually write it out. Think about this this week. Who are you specifically praying for? Who are you specifically praying for in your workplace, at school, in your neighborhood, in this community? who you know needs the love of Jesus? Are you praying for them regularly and urgently? Who is that? Write that person's name down. Think about it in your head. Who am I praying for? I want to make that a regular rhythm in my life. Maybe as I read through my on the same page reading plan, I'm going to include that. I'm going to, I'm going to pray more specifically, more directly, more urgently for this person or these people that I know need the love of Jesus because I believe that prayer makes a difference. God moves through my prayers. Secondly, how can you live with intentionality? Th think about this right now. Like all of us eat, you know, three meals a day approximately. All right. And, and some of us, we have an opportunity to maybe share a meal uh, with someone who doesn't know the love of Jesus. So often we think of that time as my time to disengage. Maybe it's another time, maybe once a week to maybe call up somebody. Hey, you want to meet me for lunch? and just begin to know them and ask them questions and invest in their lives. How can you bless others as, as we get into spring? How can you serve your neighbors? How can you be a listener to those who need someone, just, just a, another ear to listen to and to love them that way? How are you living with intentionality? And then thirdly, speaking. How can you bring your faith into everyday conversations? How can you speak graciously each day? Um, Think about this. We have Christ in us, the grace of God, and we can speak with words of grace and blessing to people who need it in our sphere of influence. And so the vision here is that we're here for good. We're bringing that new self that we are in Jesus into our homes, into our workplace, into our school systems, into our neighborhoods, into this community, and we're praying urgently, we're walking with intentionality, and we're speaking graciously. And I want to show you what that might look like. Um, we're going to show this video in just a moment here. This is the vision God has given to us, and, and we see this happening, and it just so encourages me. You guys are living this and continue to live it. So go ahead and show this video of what it looks like. We're here for good, for the good of our neighbors, the people whom God has put in our path, the ones we rub shoulders with every day, those who live next door or down the street, the people we serve at work, the students we hang out with at school, the familiar faces we see at the grocery store. We're here for our neighbors. So who is our neighbor? 
Our neighbor is anyone and everyone whom God has put in our path who needs the love of Jesus. If you draw a circle around Humboldt with a 15-mile radius, you'll find 16 towns with about 13,000 people. Approximately 75% of these people are not connected to a church family, which means that thousands of people in our community need to hear the good news of salvation found in Jesus Christ alone. So how do we reach them? How do we love our neighbors? Surprisingly, by simply being who we are, wherever we are in our daily conversations, in our everyday interactions, we speak kindly and live graciously out of our shared identity in Christ. We're here for good, for the good of our neighbors. Imagine what God will do as we live this out together as a church. big vision, but we can do that together as a church family. Uh, your specific sphere of influence, uh, man, uh, just being who you are, wherever you are, being, being a blessing, um, living with intentionality and speaking graciously to those around you. So encouraged. We're living that out together and we're here for good. I, I don't know about you, but that's something I want to give towards, uh, not only with my, with my money, but with my entire life. We have an opportunity right now to do good to this community and the surrounding communities who need the love of Jesus. So let's pray together uh, toward that end. Father, we thank you um, for this vision that you've given us. Um, we're here for good. You have placed us here, right here in Humboldt, Iowa, um, to be a blessing to our neighbors those who are on the outside of our faith community, those who need Jesus, the love of Jesus. And I pray that you would give us a heart like Paul's that would pray with urgency. We're in a spiritual war, and we need you to do the work that we cannot do. We can pray, and we can live, and we can speak, but only you alone can change the heart, Jesus. Only you alone can open up the heart and change it forever. And so we pray for that to happen here in Humboldt. And Father, now as we transition to communion, I pray that we would be united again around what you've done for us. Um, may it be a, a time for us to reflect again upon this gospel that is ours because of Jesus and to be on mission with you for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.